Welcome to Belong in the USA podcast. I am your host, Sabrina Teichman. Belong in the USA is a podcast that explores identity in the United States through the experiences of immigrants and first-generation Americans. This is Season 1, Episode 7. Season 1 is focused entirely on the infamous question, where are you from? Which is all too often asked without even thinking. Sometimes out of genuine curiosity and other times as a microaggression. If you've ever been frustrated by the question, where are you from, or even if you haven't really thought that much about the question, you're really going to enjoy this season. If you love the stories and conversations on Belong in the USA as much as I do, leave a review, subscribe, and share this episode, and check us out on Instagram at Belong in USA. All right, let's get to the good stuff. Joining me today as my special guests on Belong in the USA are Raul and Norma. Raul grew up in New York, but has an interesting background. After speaking to him about the question, where are you from? He actually suggested that I talk to his friend, Norma, who, wait for the plot twist, also happens to be Natalia's mom. Natalia is our fact checker. So uh, Raul and Norma have incredibly different stories to tell about the question, where are you from? And uh, can't wait for you all to hear what they had to say. So whether you are lounging in your favorite spot or taking a stroll around the block, I want you to leave your worries and most importantly, your preconceived notions behind. Happy listening. Where are you from? Well, when uh, what I always say, and I I will say to you, I grew up in the New York area, but my parents are from India originally. So is that sort of the standard answer? That is the answer. I, you know, when I was thinking of this um, um, podcast and what you were going to ask me, I really thought of how I've answered that question through my life. You no, know? and uh, I think that uh, it became very standard, maybe at, at a teenage um, time, or I mean, really the first time people really asked me that was when I went to college. Right, because in college everyone is from somewhere else, be it in the same country or different country. But um, you know, when you're in high school in your local area, people tend to less ask you that question. But the first time you really get asked that question, at least in my experience, on a you know every two minute basis, is when you go to high uh, go to college and you're away from home for the first time. So where was home in high school and where was college? Okay. Um, uh, a home was in, a, in, in Long Island, outside New York. I went to a, a private high school there um, in, a, in a place called Friends Academy, in a place called Locust Valley, very nice area of Long Island. And, um, you know, when I was uh, 18 or 17 or 18, I, I went to Harvard College. So that was my first experience of where are you from? I mean, it begins really the first day of freshman year. And, and, you know, I asked that question too. So I'm not saying that I only received that question, but you're suddenly in a group of people who are geographically dispersed because when you go to high school, unless you go to a boarding school, everyone is really from, are you from Glen Cove, Locust Valley? Was, I mean, you're all from the local area. So it doesn't really matter where you're from. So when you go to college, they ask you that question. And I asked that question. How do you feel when you're asked, when you were asked, where are you from in college? Did, did it make you feel any certain way? No, I, I felt very good. And, and I felt very good. 
I mean, certainly the immediate first part that I am from Long Island or I grew up outside New York. And then, and then clearly, you know, they were perceiving that there was some kind of foreignness in me. I mean, uh, and, um, you know, I was very happy to say my parents are from India or our family is from India. So I, I always answered the question in two parts, where I identified my identity in the United States from growing up and sort of where my family's roots were. And, and, and it, was, it was never an uncomfortable question for me. Interesting. Did you ever receive any uncomfortable responses when you said your family was from India? Not by the time I got to college. I mean, where being from India, it was less, uh, and I probably did mention that was more in elementary school. And again, kids are, you know, often ignorant or silly. And, you know, suddenly I, I would get questions like, does your father wear feathers? Do you grow up in a teepee? Because, you know, they didn't know the difference between American Indians and Indians from, so, you know, did, did you have tigers? And, you know, I mean, so I got a lot of that when I was in elementary school. So you're saying there was confusion between Native Americans yes. and interesting. Yeah, it wasn't so much any kind of, you know, negative attitude I perceived, but with more people or the kids' own confusion about the difference between Native Americans and, and, and uh, Indians from India. And, you know, I used to get upset about it a little bit, but, you know, I never attributed to any um sort of bad feeling or negative attitude to me it was just like these kids they're so stupid they don't even know the difference between a native american and the indian from india so that was really the way i took it and how did how did you respond to them how did you describe the difference or did you describe the difference i don't know if i really bothered trying to explain them or just kind of ignored it because i mean um, you know, I, I really don't remember whether I responded. I mean, obviously I said, no, he doesn't wear feathers and no, we don't wear TPs, but I don't know if I went to the issue of trying to educate them about the difference between uh, Indians from India and Native Americans. I, I would imagine in elementary school too, it, it, it's sort of a strange role to have to also educate your peers on. Yeah. <laughs> on global history, but um, right. that, that's really but, interesting. I mean, I, but, you know, so I just thought that was silly, but I mean, I think a point, and, you know, I've been thinking about this whole issue because I know it's a very sensitive one in this country. I mean, for me, being from India, my family or my parents are from India, was never a source of any kind of shame on my part, I mean, we, and maybe that was the circumstances also. I mean, we didn't come to the United States so much as economic immigrants, which absolutely there's nothing wrong with that. Um, my father was working for the United Nations. So he really came in a sort of a semi-diplomatic capacity to the United States. Even though he wasn't on the political side, he was really in an international organization. So we, uh, he was working in this international organization in Thailand where I was born. And then when I was three years old, he got transferred to the headquarters in New York. So we really came in that capacity. 
So, I mean, I kind of, I don't know if the word is proud or I've been completely comfortable ever since I was a child. And I mean, I get, it might've been misinterpreted, but I never had any problem or any hesitation to tell people that I was Indian or, or from India, or maybe I should, that was my mistake. I said I was Indian to these kids. And when I should have said, I am from India, and maybe they wouldn't have gotten confused with the Native Americans. So maybe it would have been partly my fault. So were you born in India or Thailand? No, I was born in Thailand, actually. I wasn't oh, you were born, born in Thailand. Thailand. But both my parents are from India, but my father was working for the United Nations in Thailand. I think it's also interesting that you don't feel like you've received any sort of uncomfortable reaction to your answers to where are you from? Well, I mean, you know, things were not all positive. And, and then let me just kind of put some, some um, uh, your color to this. I mean, we were originally living in Queens in a very sort of international community. Things were fine. Then my father had the crazy idea of uh, buying a, a big house out in Long Island. And, uh, you know, because it was being sold cheap and, and so we moved out there and it was really an all white zone neighborhood of two and three acres. So, I mean, we had our windows broken for, you know, a couple of years. And so there was definitely, you know, hostility in that sense, but that might, but I never sort of, I, I heard the windows being broken, but I never confronted that myself, you know, and then it stopped. I mean, you know, we were one of the non first non white families in, 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 in that area. But on the but you know, that has to do with them. But then in more specifically, on your question of, you know, when people's reaction, which I really sympathize, uh, when they say where they're from, and people have, you know, that kind of reaction. I mean, this country, you know, there are different places in this country. And I know, you know, no place is that great and no place is totally bad. But I have to say, growing up in the Northeastern United States, okay, New York is a place that, I mean, if people are rude, they're rude to everyone. It doesn't matter if you're brown, black, white, yellow, purple. I mean, it's kind of a free for all. And if you are a star or distinguished, New York rewards you no matter who you are. So, I mean, I feel very, I mean, aside from those people in Long Island who are, but in general, growing up in the New York ambiance, you know, in the city, I really feel that New York is as close as a meritocracy as we find in this world or in this country. And, and it's sort of like, you know, they'll admire you for what you achieve. And if they're nasty people, they'll be nasty people to you, whether, you know, whoever you are, they, they're not even looking, they're just nasty. So, I mean, I never, I always felt very comfortable in that atmosphere. Uh, and I, you know, and, and as I traveled in other parts of the country, I realized, you know, there are places where people are a lot more prejudiced and, and simply a lot less accustomed. Because in New York, you see people, you see Hasidic Jews, you see Arabs, you see Indians, you see, I mean, you just see everybody, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans. I mean, it's just all over the place all the time. Like, for example, you know, anti-Semitism. In my high school, like, I don't know, something like 40% of the people were Jewish. So, I mean, I never knew that Jewish was something 
not totally normal. I mean, I was always hearing about bar mitzvahs and bas mitzvahs and, you know, it was like so normal to me being Jewish. I didn't even realize that for some people in this country, Jews are not normal. I mean, that, that's, that's the thing. So, I mean, I grew up in a little bit of an elitist environment, but still in the context of the overall city, which I felt that, you know, despite some incidents and things in general was very accepting of people from wherever they were. And when I went to college, I mean, it was a very open-minded liberal atmosphere. I mean, the one time, the one thing that happened to me that I didn't know whether it had to do with ethnicity or not was uh, I was assigned a room with uh, in my freshman dorm. And after meeting my roommate, who was sort of a, a very Broadway oriented person, very interested in music, I kind of liked that. So after the first day we introduced her and then he never talked to me. He refused to talk to me. And I didn't know, is this because he didn't want to be with someone from anyway, but you know, he just wouldn't talk to me. So I went to the people and they moved me to another, another room. And, and really for, you know, for the longest time, I never, never understood why after the first day he never talked to me now i did get in contact with him like 40 years later and i asked him but i don't know whether it was an honest answer or not an honest answer i asked him were you did my being india of indian origin have something to do with the reason you refused to speak to me after the first day this has been bothering me all my life and he said, no, really, I was in a very confused place uh, in terms of me and my identity and what I was doing. And I had agreed with the college that they would give me a separate dorm room because I just didn't feel at this point, I was at a point that I could relate to a roommate and, and deal with that. I had all these things going on. And maybe that's exactly right because it was a very small room that was really indicated for one person and they put two of us in there. And so he had probably gone through a fair process, getting them to agree to give him a single room. And then when he found me there, it was probably his own. So, I mean, let me give him the benefit of the doubt that it was really, but I think there could have been better ways of handling it. He could have told me, you know, I have these issues, these personal issues I'm going through. And I was really promised single room and, and um, that's why I'm not comfortable. So let's go and see if we can resolve this. You know, that would have been a much more human way because I, I then went for years thinking, was there something about me or, you know, what was wrong with me that after one day, this was the first time I was away from home and to be like rejected by your first roommate was, was you know, and for you don't know what reason was, was kind of disturbing, but. I give him the benefit of the doubt now. So what compelled you to reach out to him after such a long period of time? You know, because it always bothered me. And whenever I talk to, uh, you know, I'm still in touch with some of my other friends who I made later after I, you know, I moved just down the hall. So I moved down two doors. So, you know, it just bothered me because why... I don't know why, it's just an unanswered question in my life that I needed to have answered. And he actually went on and um, 
became a Broadway, got involved in Broadway, produced some shows, had a very successful career, which I was very admiring of, but I just, I just felt I had to, so I uh, reached out to him on Facebook and I just said, why? And, and, and he was very nice when he wrote back to me and very kind of apologetic. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's like getting closure. I mean, you know, and, and I, I take the benefit, you know, given the benefit of the doubt. But other than that, I didn't feel I, I uh, in college, I didn't feel I encountered any any kind of uh, discrimination. And I was happy to always give my stock answer. I grew up in the New York area, but my parents are from India or our family is from India. And, and I, I was very, very happy. Now, after college, I, I, uh, when I came down to DC actually and, and worked for a management consulting firm for two years before I went back to Harvard Business School. And again, during my two-year experience here, I absolutely never felt any kind of, you know, reaction or anything. So, I mean, maybe it was my fortunate experience. Maybe it was the world in which I moved, which was people at a fairly, you know, high uh, educated level or, you know, exposure to a lot of different things. But I never felt any. I never felt anything. I mean, it was funny that uh, with all this um, Black Lives Matter movement of this year, one of my college section mates actually re reached out to me, and 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 he he wrote to me, "Did you feel any kind of discrimination when you were at Harvard Business School?" Uh, you know, and I said, "No." I wrote back to him. I loved the people in my section. You know, we were like a big family. It never, never felt anything, never felt anything. Now, where it could have been probably less obvious is in job interviews. Like, you know, I had notably much less luck in some of these investment banking interviews and these sort of hardcore than some of my, my uh, classmates who were, you know, maybe not as, um, you know, accomplished in some ways, but, much more good old boy types. So, I mean, those are kind of more subtle things and you don't know who, what enters. I mean, people tend to identify better with people who look like them and you know, sound like them. And so I think um, job searching, uh, at least in the more traditional spheres was a little harder for me, but you know, that, those are sort of a little more subtle things. So you've talked about how you don't feel like you experience a ton of discrimination, which is yeah. very positive. Yeah. But you've also shared with us sort of an incident that happened, you know, that first week in college that mm. stuck with you for, for so long that you actually confronted the person. Yeah, right. Obviously on Facebook. I knew this happened on Facebook, by yeah, the right. way, when you told the story. But um I, I want to ask you about, you mentioned closure. Did it bring you closure when, by reaching out? And did you provide any of sort of that feedback that you shared with us? Like, this is how I feel like you should have handled it. Like, how did that conversation go? Yeah, you know what, maybe there isn't closure. I mean, I felt that when I read it, I had closure, but I never really responded to his email. Because oh, maybe- I didn't, and, and maybe that, or my, I think message, it was a Facebook message, messenger. And maybe I should have, maybe I would have given him some more closure. 
I think by telling him exactly what I told you, I should have said, I said, okay. And maybe I'll still do it. I mean, but I don't know why I, I just never responded. I just, you know, maybe I was still a little pissed off or, 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 or something, but I, I, I don't know why I just didn't respond because I, I usually responded. I, I just felt he had sort of made me an apology and that was it. But maybe I need to go uh, back further steps, say, I accept your apology. Thanks so much for sharing this with me. I'm sorry you were going through a difficult period then, but it would have been nicer for you to share that with me so that I didn't feel that I was the source personally. It was more the situation which got you so upset. But, but you left me feeling that it was me. And that was, you know, that was what was painful. Yeah, and I think a lot of us don't always have the opportunity to confront the person that made us feel that way, in a sense. Exactly. So it's it's really interesting hearing this story of yours because when I think back to a lot of the, the moments or times where people made me feel like I was being discriminated against or I didn't belong, uh, a lot of those experiences, it, you know, I don't know if I will ever pass cross paths with that person again. So it, it's really interesting to see sort of the full circle. But I think more importantly, the fact that how much these experiences stick with us, whether we right. want them to or not, whether they happen frequently or not. So back to the question, where are you from? Do you ever answer it differently when you are outside of the United States? Yeah, because, uh, you know, just like you, I spent most of my career actually working outside the U.S. I mean, I, I was in the Inter-American Development Bank, you know, for many, for 14 years. I was in private equity funds and usually with a focus on Latin America. So, I mean, everybody asks me where I'm from, and I always say, I'm from the United States, but my parents are from India. You know, in some ways, your answer is so easy and simple. <laughs> it, is, it is easy and simple because it establishes my identity that I did grow up in the United States, you know? So that's home for me, but my, you know, origin is, is, is from my parents are from India, which is clearly why to them, I don't look like a white gringo, you know? So, and, and you know, that uh, certainly in Latin America that has always, and then they said, como es que tu hablas tan bien español? And so, I mean, it always enters into new conversations. So they're always admiring actually that someone who is uh, not of Latin origin, someone who's of Indian origin and grew up in the United States did not grow up in Latin America, still speaks the language and takes so much interest in the culture. So I always find that uh, that's, a, that's a great conversation starter uh, when I'm in Latin America and, and it helps break the ice. So, you know, I found it, if anything, a great advantage in, in, in those places. I'm getting the sense from talking to you that you have a very strong sense of identity. Would you say that's correct? I think so. I have a strong sense of identity and I, I'm sort of proud of all the pieces of it. I mean, this is what I think worries me about some immigrants and it may have to do with, you know, uh, the circumstances in which they came here, you know, 
I came here with parents who come from a very, very poor country, but who are both highly educated. So my parents, my father worked for the UN. My mother was a university professor. She became she did her PhD when she came to the United States and, and taught in a thing. So, I mean, I felt that we were at, at, at a level equal to anyone in the US. I mean, I, I no sense of inferiority. The fact that we came from a poor country, okay. But I mean, you know, we were able to integrate. My parents both spoke English fluently when they came to the US. I learned very fast too. So, you know, we didn't have the language barriers. We didn't have the education barriers. We didn't have the economic barriers. You know, we, we had enough money, we, you know, good education, language. So, I mean, you know, I came with a full pack of cards. Most, most immigrants come with a partial or almost empty pack of cards. And so that really affects often their experience in the country because I think that a lot of discrimination is not only because of our origins, but, but often the economic circumstances, the ability to speak the language, that we speak the language well, and, you know, uh, perceptions. I think there's classism in it also, you know? I mean, so I mean, like, uh, like uh, Natalia's mother, Norma, I don't know if you met her. She's just an amazing, you should have her on the show also. She's, <laughs> she's gone through an amazing experience. And, but she tells me that, you know, where she lives, uh, which is in Arizona, which I think has been much more of a sort of uh, racist place historically, though I think it's coming along. Um, she always says that, you know, the uh, people always tell her, well, you know, um, you're the good Mexican, you know? It's like, like we accept you because you're kind of the good Mexican. I mean, as opposed to the bad Mexican. Now, I have never lived in a part of the United States with that kind of apartheid mentality. I mean. Uh, you know, I always uh, went to Arizona to visit Norma and to visit Natalia and all that. And really, in Scottsdale, I felt that, you know, either you were white or you had, and rich or you were a Mexican gardener. You know, I mean, it's like you had two choices. So that when, when I go into Starbucks, everybody sort of was looking at me. I mean, I hadn't felt that way in the United States, certainly not in D.C., certainly not in Boston, certainly not in New York. I think we're going to have to take a trip to Arizona now to hear from this infamous Norma about the good Mexican. More after the break. We were talking to a friend of yours and he mentioned we should probably ask you this question. Where are you from? Well, I am originally from the border of US-Mexico, Sonora and Arizona border. And so the uniqueness of that, um, you know, area is that everybody is related <laughs> and I can't even say because the way they, they, they created the border, it landed on the area. Um, and so basically one day, you know, the U.S. to um, through, you know, a sale of the land from Mexico, they literally put a border. And so whoever landed on the other side was Mexican and whoever landed on the on the on the north side was American. So there's an incredible relationship there between those two uh, regional areas. Um, and so to that point, they, they continue to use both languages. So English and Spanish are intermingled in everyday life. 
um, and the majority of the community is Mexican American. So you don't have a minority status. Very interesting. How do you feel when I just ask you the question, where are you from? You know, as an immigrant, I love to share that I am originally from that country. Um, and so I, and because I, you know, I am first generation into this country, I, I tell people that. Um, so I feel comfortable sharing that part. You know, if you are the right looking immigrant, you know, then you are, they open doors for you. Um, I happen to have a family with variations of, of skin tones. And so that could be very different from a sibling that's much darker than, you know, my sister and I who are much lighter skin. And so that becomes a sort of like an entry point, right? Because you look the part. Um, the other part is, is sort of being, uh, you know, invited sort of to the, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and, and sort of open doors, you know, to, to be part of the economic, you know, um, sort of, you know, system in, in, in becoming a businesswoman. And so to me, it was very important that I was accepted, you know, into those, those, those environments. And I think that's where I became sort of like, you know, the good Mexican, because <laughs> they thought I was safe, I guess. The good Mexican. You're going to have to tell us a little more about that. Yeah, you know, it, it's sort of, um, I, I don't understand what, what defines that for anyone, but in my case, it sort of simply became that I was, it, and, and I was told at times, you know, I spoke English fluently. Okay, that, that's one metric. The other one was um, I, I had assimilated into the cultural, you know, someone said to me, uh, they were doing research at Stanford University on languages and, and they did this testing that they do for CIA, you know, and, and, and you know, sort of understanding of cultures. And it was interesting because they said, you're not fully bilingual, but you're fully assimilated into the US. So you think like us, you know, you act like us. So uh, that to me was a very surprising way of thinking. But when you're in a border, you're really going to be sort of the, you know, the outcome of two cultures, right? So like, I'll give you an example. My first English word was Mickey Mouse. Why? Because I watched the Disney Channel <laughs> and the, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. So mouse was my word, mouse. That's really cute. Um, so you, you're you've talked a little bit about skin color. Um, what about education? Um, we, we heard a little bit from Raul, or really a lot, about how he really felt like his immigrant experience was better than many others because he immigrated with his parents who were highly educated and he was sort of part of this, you know, elite circle, um, ultimately going to Harvard. And so he just kept saying, like, I don't think I had it that bad. What has your experience been? Yeah, I did not come from that type of background. You know, I did not have a highly educated, uh, you know, uh, uh, parent on either side. And, and so, yeah, it was the sort of the, 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 the immigrant, the complete immigrant story, you know, you come in and you have a chance at it. I was the first to go to college in my family, um, first to graduate high school, first to graduate college. And so that really kind of, you know, 
um, put me as sort of a, a not only as a you know breaking barriers not only for myself but really opening doors for my own family members. Um, and, and so yeah, it was not the the simple thing where you just go to school and do well. No, you really are encountering you know you haven't had a mentor in that process of how do you go to college, right? How do you make it through college? Um, and, and so I was lucky enough that I had incredible champions along the way, whether it was in the education system or outside of it, um, that provided that sort of championing um, for, for myself. And then I in turn did that for my sister. So now we both are uh, the uh, only two siblings out of seven that you know completed a college education. Wow. I wanna go back to the good Mexican. <laughs> we've we've talked a little bit um, on the podcast uh, uh, with with some of our guests about experiences that they've had where um, when they've said where they're from, people have reacted or responded in really strange ways or uh, offensive ways, frankly. Um, but this is sort of the first I'm hearing of of kind of. It's called a name like you're the good Mexican because you've assimilated into the United States better. Have you experienced anything beyond the, the good Mexican or just any other experiences like that? I guess in, in, in that um, I, I, I almost felt like I filled a, a, a perception for them or, or, or I shifted the perception more, more, more likely. So, for example, they, you know, their portrayal of a of a Mexican was, you know, some immigrant family, uneducated, working in the farms, um, working as a nanny, um, working, you know, as 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 gardeners, you know. So there was this very uh, narrow way of looking of, of the immigrant Mexican um, American, you know, to the U.S. Um, and that's obviously portrayed in everyday media, right? In in the shows we watch, in the in the program programming we see in billions of impressions that you see every day. But um, when, when I, uh, you know, I'm, they were presented with someone like myself, you know, very driven, um, high work ethic, um, entrepreneur to the heart, you know, um, they were like really, you know, impressed and, and they welcomed me. So I actually would say that I've had an incredible opportunity I mean, um, you know, even in my history uh, as a career, uh, uh, before I became an entrepreneur, I ended up, you know, not only working in public policy uh, in, in Congress as a legislative aide, but I also, you know, became a presidential appointee. Um, and, and those are not easy to come to, right? Um, but it was because there was sort of a, 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 an opening door for, for, for who I was and that they, I was acceptable for them. There were no other, you know, limits on, 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 on my, I guess, you know, I, I, I didn't fit the, the typical role of a nanny or, or a maid, right? Um, so I, I was in a new role, right? And that I created, obviously, but, but I really changed perceptions for them. I think it would be interesting um, for you to talk a little bit more about what you saw as some of the challenges, but also some of the opportunities that you've had because you've been able, you sort of, you talked about growing up like on the border in a way mm -hmm. where from the beginning you experienced uh, sort of both cultures and um, you know, while our border is really long, I think a lot of Americans have never experienced that. 
Right. Um, well, one of the areas that I think even looking back is that the empowerment I felt, I never felt a minority. I never felt, you know, I was a subgroup of anyone because everybody looked like me. <laughs> we were all Mexican-Americans, right, in the same place. And everybody on the other side was related to us. They were all, all cousins, right, <laughs> in some ways. And so that, that I think, sets you up for, for, for success already because you're not fighting your, your role, your position in society. You're already a active participant in the mainstream, right? Mainstream for that border was Mexican-American. The languages were bilingual, right? And so I spoke Spanish at home and used English at school. And that was very, very typical of the households in that border community. Um, in fact, when I went to the university in a bigger city, I didn't realize people didn't speak Spanish because I grew up with everybody that spoke, you know, um, if, if not, per, you know, fluently, at least some, you know, Spanish. And so, so I think that was a positive, um, an incredible positive because you know, you, you are sort of um, a product right, of your environment. And so I thought um, we were, you know, everybody looked like us in, in, in everyday life, you know, with our leadership roles at the, at the you know, city, county level, um, and they spoke our language and all that. But then we moved from that in, you know, traveling and living, you know, um, in both coasts of the U.S., you know, Washington, D.C. And, and, and in California. I realized, right, the, the dynamics that played with minority communities. Um, but, but I still, I think, um, and, and, I, and I did, by the way, encounter situations where um, were very uncomfortable. Um, for example, you know, we purchased a house in Orange County, California, where it was a very, very affluent community. And, and, um, and, and both my husband at the time and I were, you know, working professionals, we could afford that type of house. Um, and, and in those days, there were still salesmen that would come knocking at your house, you know, to sell insurance or some product for the household. And when um, I opened the door, you know, holding a baby in my arms, you know, um, the, the, the gentleman, you know, said, can I speak to the lady of the house? Because he could not imagine that I would be the lady who owned the house. And I said, I am the lady of the house. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about your experience in Washington, D.C. and also working on public policy. Absolutely. Um, the, the, the part of living in D.C., as you know, you know, um, um, it, it's a very vibrant city uh, at all times, but housing can, you know, can be difficult to find because of the competitiveness, right, of, of the pricing market. Um, so we had been living in a rental apartment, you know, um, not only uh, first in Capitol Hill, but then later in the suburb of Virginia. And then, you know, soon after we decided that we were going to look for a house to purchase. And, um, and the first realtor we found immediately um, only uh, showed us houses that were in the poorest of neighborhoods in the worst, you know, crime-ridden areas of, 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 the, of the, you know, surrounding neighboring uh, communities, whether it was, you know, Virginia, Maryland, or D.C. And it was shocking to us because um, we had never purchased a house, so this was like a beginning, and we we're like, do people start looking at the worst places? <laughs> you know, these are houses were falling down and, you know, needed a lot of work, and we never even uh, understood why we were being geared to go look at those properties. 
um, soon after, after I think going on several visits to these homes, we said, this is not what we like. I mean, we don't even want to fix anything. We want to buy a house we can live in right away. And, and we ended up uh, getting a second uh, realtor to assist us. But even then they were still looking at, you know, we, we were up, um, in those days, you had to be have a pre uh, approval from your bank to actually even go look at a house. And so we would send our letter and they knew the amount of, of, of market pricing that we could, you know, uh, look at. And they would still go under, way under. And we don't understand that, you know. Um, and after we dropped that second realtor, we ended up looking at houses and we ended up buying the first one, um, sale by owner, where we actually found a sign from, a, you know, and, and the person sold us direct, directly to us. But unfortunately, it was like, had we not dropped those two uh, realtors, we probably would have ended up with a terrible house that we probably would have not been able to resell. Why do you think the realtors were doing that? I think they, they only saw our our heritage at that point, which was really strange. And that's when I go back to economics because the biggest sort of influencer in, in the American economy, you know, economic, you know, upward mobility is housing where you become a homeowner. And so um, to us, that was a critical moment. You know, we were gonna do the, the purchase for that home and, and they continue to see like, oh, these are minority um, members. Um, although we both had high employment in the DC, you know, job market, um, it, it, it was, it, and it was again, both realtors, you know, looked at it as like, okay, maybe they just wanted us to be in a separate area of town or didn't think we could afford it, which was interesting because they had the pre-approval from the bank, you know, from the start. And I want to share this other story. When I lived in Orange County, uh, we, you know, we were moving from the first house we moved to a second house, and we had put our house in the market. And one of our my neighbors, uh, um, you know, uh, white couple um, that lived two houses down, um, came to me because she kept watching the traffic of. In those days, remember, the homeowner was always at the house when when they came viewing. Now I know people don't do that anymore, but it was it was an open house, and you know you were there doing going about your business, and people would tour your house, and so. Um, she noticed a, a lady, a Mexican lady with, with uh, a teenage and adult children that came into the house for the open house. And soon after they left, she immediately called me and said, can I come over? And I said, sure, you know, because we were neighbors and immediately said, you're not going to sell to them, are you? And I didn't understand because there were so many people that had come through. I, I didn't understand who she was speaking about, but I said, um, what are you talking about? And she said, yeah, the people that, that, you know, the lady that showed up with the young people um, and, and her uh, young teenage adult sons. And then I said, oh, I go, why? Why would you say that? And she says, because they're Mexican and, and the, the community would change. The neighborhood is not going to be the same. And I, I was shocked that here I had been friends with this neighbor and all of a sudden telling me they were not the right people to move into that house. Well, long story short is that we showed the house to a lot of people. She, this lady probably had the lowest bid on my house and I sold it to her. Did your neighbor not know that you were Mexican American? We were the right ones, right? Oh she, yeah, I for, sorry, I forgot. You're a good Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's and, and By wild. the way, this woman was an entrepreneur herself, owned a pizzeria in Orange County. Um, she had, you know, three, uh, I think three or four, uh, uh, 
from teenage to a young adult sons and one daughter. Um, an incredible family, great story about their life. And, and they, you know, they still own the house, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned when you were growing up speaking um, both English and Spanish, and, um, but mostly Spanish at home. Uh, how did that uh, impact you? Well, for one, you know, that was the language, uh, like I said, at, at home, and, and it really, you know, um, um, made us, in fact, it empowered us to be bilingual, right, because we could um, still have the native tongue and continue to grow in it, right, um, because I became not only, you know, uh, I wasn't just fluent in verbal Spanish, but written communication as well, and that's important, right, um, but on the other hand, on the, on the, on the school side, it was difficult because no one at home really understood the, the you know, the education process and systems. Um, you know, my mom had uh, very little education, formal education in Mexico. So she didn't understand what high school would be like, or she wouldn't understand what a college plan would look like. And so um, being fluent in English, you know, and interpreting, you know, I literally became the interpreter for the household, right? Not only translating the information from school, but also documents, you know, that what my mother needs to sign or, or send back to the school. And, and imagine, you know, there's seven siblings. So there's a lot of documentation here, you know, going back and forth to, to the household. But it was unfortunate because think about that, you know, the most important, you know, influencer in your life cannot be, you know, it's, it's really uh, kept out because of a language barrier. And I'm just a child, right? So whatever I'm translating, you know, hopefully it goes right. Um, and so that was un unfortunate in, in that sense. And that really is what I turn into my passion now um, because years, years later, I decided to um, bring that same uh, concept of what I became in those days, you know, as a communicator back and forth to school in a technology platform and create what is connecting uh, my, my venture, you know, tech education adventure, which provides schools, you know, a connection to home with the parents native tongue. So really promoting that champion at home to influence you on education and, and really, you know, break all the language barriers, uh, break any, you know, cultural barriers, because as you can imagine, right, every education system um, for those immigrant populations is very different. From, you know, from when they come in, they don't understand. I mean, um, not too long ago, I had a, a parent uh, using the platform um, and, and she was, her language was Arabic. Uh, she was from Syria. And unfortunately, um, when she was asked to go to a meeting for the school, she was in panic because in Syria, the only reason you would get called to the school because your kid was in trouble, not because of a good thing. And it was actually uh, just a, a parent-teacher conference that is very normal in the US. Um, but that's the kind of engagement that I wanted to, you know, um, uh, provide for families. And then also, you know, not only as a business venture, but as a social impact venture that I'm transforming the way we engage families and promote, you know, student achievement by breaking all the other barriers, you know. That is really cool. That really takes me to another sort of scenario, right, that happened um, for me, but also I, I can see happening for uh, young uh, immigrant children and, and, and teenagers right now 
in you know awaiting their processing you know to get into uh, the us is that they do become almost their own uh, representative of, 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 of like even medical. I remember going to doctor's visits where I still had to tell my mom what the doctor said about my other siblings. And here I am carrying medical information that, I mean, as a child, you're thinking, oh my God, what if I get this wrong? What if he said two doses instead of one, right? I don't know. I mean, but putting that burden on a child and I could see that happening very easily in the immigration processing because you're giving an incredible amount of, of, of very, very, you know, difficult information. And in this case, it has legal implications um, to someone that, you know, either is barely understanding the language themselves um, or has limited concept of the, of the language, right? Um, and so I totally agree with you on, on how difficult that can be. Um, um, and, and it really puts an, an incredible burden on the child. Well, it's excellent that we have Connecti now to help with that. <laughs> yeah, it's Connecti. 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 Connecti, yes. Um, yeah, that, that's awesome. How many languages? So we offer 102 languages. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we, we started going into the opportunity to understand how these communities really uh, were facing all these, um, you know, the, the system was broken in so many ways, right? Um, and, and we didn't understand what were their pain points, but we really delved into, you know, uh, took a deep deep dive into what, what made it so difficult for them and including something some, as simple as signing forms. Um, they had a very difficult sign, you know, because it, in that point, it wasn't just a translation, but really getting the form back to school. And so by putting it on a digital format, anybody could just sign the document and send it back to school, you know, whether it was a nurse's, uh, you know, information on, on COVID safety related uh, information, or, you know, in the, in, in um, you know, an assignment, you know, coming up um, or testing for the children, you know, and so yeah, so we, we really sort of, by when we build the platform, we, we you know, the, we, put, we had it with the end in mind that how do we facilitate communication from home to school um, and, and make it as easy, as user-friendly, as seamless as possible um, so these families are connected at all times. It's going to make such a big impact on so many lives. Thank That's you. Awesome. How old were you when you immigrated to the United States or really uh, came across the border to the other side? Yeah, I was nine years old uh, when I immigrated to the US and I moved seven blocks to the US. And so that wow. in itself is a unique environment. You know, now, you know, years as an adult, I would always be asked, you know, when I did presentations in schools, what was my immigrant story? And, and, and I said, I moved seven blocks. So I did not have the, you know, the many difficult issues that many people did, but my mo mother um, lived seven blocks on the Mexican side, you know, to the border. So that's how, much, how far we moved. So how did it happen? Like, it's just one day your parents were like, we're gonna move no, seven blocks. No. <laughs> my mother was a, 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 a single mother widowed in Mexico. And so she, uh, ended up marrying an American citizen. And um, it was a, a sort of a red carpet affair because after marrying her, he wanted her to move with her two children, my brother and I to the US. And so he emigrated my mother and us. 
and we came as the U.S. to the U.S. You know, as uh, through a a, a a U.S. marriage. I think sometimes people don't understand just how like the border was sort of just put. I think um, when you don't grow up in a border environment, you have no concept of that. One thing I can share is um, uh, I'm being so in close proximity to the border that I, uh, as a nine-year-old, I was very excited to join the Girl Scouts when I got to school. And I had to sell cookies and my cookies were sold in Mexico. Um, and so I didn't realize that I was doing international commerce at that point, but my school was very upset because now they had to deliver all the Girl Scout cookies to the Mexican side. And, and so it was all my grandmother's friends who had bought the cookies, um, you know, Girl Scout cookies. And so, yeah, and, but, but we literally would go visit back and forth and visit, you know, my grandmother at the time. Um, because we were so close and and obviously it's a very different environment right now with with you know law enforcement and customs you know and barriers around the border but in the old days we literally would, you know we could walk back and forth you know and say I'm a U.S. citizen and there was very few um, paperwork or or you know if you were a green card holder you would show your card and that was it um, now it's a whole you know different uh, uh, process to get through a border how did your experience as a Mexican-American who came as a child and, and your mother's experience uh, throughout that impact uh, your relationship and sort of how you raised your two um, children in the United States? Yeah, it certainly had a, a, an impact on me because you know my mother for the most part was very silent. Um, uh, in, in, in both the English and Spanish language, um, um, she just really, um, I don't know if she ever felt empowered, you know, even if she was legally in the U.S. Um, um, and, and, and I came across in a very different way that I was part of this community, um, you know, and like I told you, I, I, I was raised in a very empowering uh, uh, place, right, because there was no minority status at any point. Um, and so I think you know, having two daughters and, and raising them in the US, I really brought them into the mainstream. And, you know, lucky for me because I was part of the mainstream economic uh, mobility, right? Um, with career, with entrepreneurship opportunities. Um, and so I think that continues to be displayed because I've always empowered them to be the best they can be at anything they want. I mean, so there's no limits. And and I don't, I didn't want them to ever be, you know, left behind on, for any reason that they really can push themselves to whatever they want in life. Um, but, but that also, I think, goes back to the stronghold that I felt, you know, I had no limits, you know, um, for myself. And, and I think that comes across with, you know, um, both daughters, you know, pursuing their own dreams and, and, and not limiting and, you know, in any way uh, because of status or, uh, social, economic, or, you know, political, whatever. It's just, they can really be thriving in their own space. It feels like there's so much to say about this episode. I know it's quite long, longer than usual, but I felt like hearing Raul tell his story about where are you from, and then him sort of encouraging me to talk to Norma and then hearing Norma's story, uh, it, it was just so interesting to hear them back to back. And you guys know I like to do that with some episodes because it gives you really a chance to just contrast and compare. 
I like how Raul was very honest about the fact that he felt like his immigrant story involved a full deck of cards, which is actually the exact way he described it. And how depending on how many cards you arrive with in your deck could really change the trajectory or um, decide in some ways your fate and, and success. I was struck, though, by how he would gloss over certain events or situations that happened that were really troublesome, frankly. He explained that sometimes people would break the windows of his family's house in Long Island, but then it just stopped. So I, I got to give the guy some credit. He's incredibly resilient, but um, it's interesting how he the way in which he internalized situations that challenged his identity in some way and the ways in which he didn't. I, I thought that was really fascinating because you also had this instance where he had a situation with someone in undergrad and 40 years later, it still bothered him enough to reach out to the person. So it's sort of like, always fascinating how questions about our identity impact us in different ways and and also sometimes like the length of time it takes to fully process those experiences we can't do a wrap-up of this episode without talking about norma's experience as the good mexican i really found that to be just incredibly ridiculous, but also concerning that the reality is, is a lot of people look at immigrants and then sort of judge them based on how Americanized they are, I guess, probably a very simplistic way of putting it. And there's different factors, right? How the, the tone of their skin, how well they speak English and with, with what, which accent, the degrees they have, the neighborhoods they live in, um, the occupations, how much they hold on to their cultural heritage versus how much they've, how much they've assimilated into sort of typical American culture. I think I also thought a lot about the flip side, sort of, if you are being characterized and defined as the good, quote unquote, representative of your culture, ethnicity, background, sort of how that puts pressure on you to behave in a certain way or make certain decisions, whether it is that you want to live up to that expectation in some way or maybe you are really frustrated by it. And I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. I am so grateful to Norma and Raul for sharing their stories with us about the question, where are you from? Thank you so much for joining this episode. So for the fact check, I wanted to do things a little bit different this episode because we did just have Natalia's mom on and Natalia obviously listened to all of the things that her mom shared, and I'm sure these are stories she's heard before, 
but I wanted to give her a little bit more creative license to take the fact check in, in maybe a bit of a different direction and not do our traditional fact check. And so she's decided to actually have a conversation with her sister about their experiences with the question and um, some feelings about some of their mom's um, uh, responses as well. So happy listening. Hi everyone, it's Natalia. And for the fact check today, having a conversation with my sister, Mika Bella. Hello. <laughs> who I have gotten to join me for this little segment because I was listening to my mom and my dear Rahul's recording. And my sister asked me for the first time what the podcast was about. And I was like, oh, let me like give you an example before I explain the podcast. Mm, it was like, when yes. people ask you where you're from, what do you say? Arizona, but originally California. And then how do people react? That is it. And then I gave my perspective when I'm asked the question, it's always an interrogation. It's like, oh, where are you really from? Where are your ancestors? What's your origin? It all ends when I say, oh, my family's originally from Mexico or my mom immigrated from Mexico. And there's the assumption in their mind was confirmed. And that somehow gives them some sort of insight in who they think I am based on that. Then you wanted to be on the podcast to share your perspective because we heard from my mom and we heard from my perspective and now we wanted to hear yours to kind of compare and contrast also given that my mom while has an accent is you know pretty white passing I am mm -hmm. look Mexican I think and I am very white looking very white yes. white and yeah so I just thought it was a little rude of you not to ask <laughs> me to be on here to tell like my part because I feel like there's a bunch of people who don't really fit the stereotype of whatever given ethnicity they are hard to really feel tied down to this ethnicity and everything because you don't really portray it physically and or what they think yeah it's like person is supposed to look like yeah and then that's and depending on the person that's like asking you about it that's either a good or bad thing like I know since my name's Mika Bella, it's not very, it's not a very typical American name. And so when I'm asked about its origin, I tell them that I'm Mexican. And usually that results in saying like, oh, like, well, you don't look like you're Mexican or like, thank God you don't look Mexican, and you know? there's one way to look. Yeah. Or, and, yeah. you know, like I'm almost congratulated for being born lighter. I'm in that weird space where like I'm too Mexican to be white when I tell them and I'm too white to look I mean to be Mexican so it's right. a very weird uh, thing that I've experienced yeah and do you want to give an example of how you've had that negative reaction or like what have been people's reactions like I said like teachers and parents when they ask about like my origin or whatever and they find out I'm Mexican congratulating me that I don't appear Mexican you know and that I'm I'm different because I'm white like I I pass some Qualify. yeah like I pass a test in their mind oh you're a good you're type safe. yeah you're, yeah and so it's really weird and uncomfortable and I've had elementary school parents say that to me and teachers sometimes so yeah. and then it just reinforces okay well this is good I know yeah and, and then you know darker is bad yeah and then like as a kid, I was, I was almost happy. I was like, yeah, like if you're talking to me like this and I'm white passing to you, I can't imagine what you'd be saying if I was dark. Would you be telling your kids not to hang out with me or something? I thought another interesting point was 
either when people found out we were related because mm-hmm. you know uh, we're two years apart when we went to elementary or middle school together and it's school. bound to happen in high mm-hmm. school yeah we would see each other on campus or our friends would see the other one on campus mm-hmm. and it's always such a weird reaction because I was almost prepared for it in a way where I'm oh I'm gonna have to go through like the same thing where like they're gonna figure out we can with my sister and then say something <laughs> about our skin color which is so weird now that I'm saying it out loud as a freshman sophomore junior and even senior I had to be like oh we're gonna have this talk where I have to explain that we have different skin colors mm-hmm. which is why the fuck do I have to explain that yeah but yeah I remember like one instance in particular where you know at, we had the same lunch one year yeah we sat near each other which was strange because we weren't really friends yeah we didn't talk to each other but <laughs> you know my sister would see me from behind come and get food for me or whatever and then put her arm around me or just like come up and sit next to me and then I'd be like oh this is my sister to my friends around me or whatever and then she'd you know get the food and leave or whatever <laughs> and the one girl was oh my god your sister's white <laughs> and this is like you know the hundredth time this has happened to me so I'm like oh my god what like it, what are you're enlightening me right now like yeah I was fe- I was like you know making fun of the situation it happened so many times I got bored with you know reacting the same way and she almost got caught off guard when I said that as if I didn't know my sister had a different skin color yeah. like her trying to let me know or I don't know what to make of it it's just weird no yeah that I've had that same exact thing or if siblings are ever brought up I'm I always say like oh I don't really look like my sister or whatever and when people like see pictures or like meet my sister they're like oh yeah you guys do look like not nothing alike you know and it's like they're walking around yeah like they like they're saying that in a way to say you're different colors you know (laughs) and if it was not a big deal then they wouldn't have us like walking around yeah them doing that you're then at least for me in my mind I'm like okay well obviously they see something wrong with it or something bad yeah. And from my experiences, because I do have darker skin, like I was the one who was, you know, not right or had a negative connotation. Yeah. But yeah, the whole reason I wanted to have my sister on here and talk about this was because back to my mom, her episode was about her experience, you know, living in a predominantly Mexican American community and how that gave her confidence and showed her that, you know, there's people who look like you in every kind of type of position of power. And then moving forward where now she was able to move up economically in the U.S. And what she she called it like the mainstream economic lifestyle, giving new opportunities to me and my sister that she never had growing up. And how she was so excited to empower us at home to you know pursue anything we wanted to do. And that did happen. But then the minute we go outside, we're in these predominantly white neighborhoods, communities, schools, institutions that are telling us the opposite or associating white with wealthy, good, successful, and brown with, you know, dirty, not good, not safe, bad. While we did have more like economic opportunities, we had like, you know, small interactions with people that reinforce that somehow related to your skin color, there's something either not right or because of your skin color, you pass the test. Yeah. Yeah. 100% where what our mom did like as much as she enforced success in us and everything like growing up in Scottsdale like as a kid you know 
as soon as you walk out that door, you want to hide your like culture and everything yeah. because then you get made fun of. Like if I brought quesadillas to lunch and everything, it stares, you know, they say it smells, it stinks or whatever. We can try to empower all these different kids and everything, but then it's in their everyday life and schools where that the difference is really noticeable. Yeah. And then it adds up because it's like you had this one experience at lunch and then another experience, you know, going to class. And I mentioned this in another episode, but like these reinforcements then translate into like, at least for me, like I didn't want to speak Spanish and I was the older one. So then I, yeah, I was like, if Natalia's not doing it, I'm not going to do it. Exactly. And also like, because I remember if my mom or something would come to our thing and she'd like say something to us in Spanish, like I'd get so embarrassed and stuff. And like, I would automatically get looks from our teacher or classmates being like, oh, like you're ethnic like where Uh, (laughs) like where did this come from you know and yeah it was just like you learn to like hate these things about yourself basically at your school and then like every adult in our life who either spoke Spanish or like saw my parents speaking in Spanish to me and then me responding in English being like you're gonna lose it and then you're gonna be so mad at yourself and so true though it was true but it was like why couldn't you see what was going around to see this oh, wasn't my yeah. decision to be like, oh, I don't want to speak Spanish because like I don't, I'm lazy or you know I don't want to right now. It's because Spanish is associated with being Mexican and that is associated with being bad. Yeah, it, it, was, it was. I almost now I'm almost upset at the adults in it's our lives so who dumb too. said that. Even our own parents said that to us. Do you not see what's going on when you speak Spanish or the looks you get? I or? know, and then especially like at the store, my mom would be on the phone. She has a very loud voice. I don't know if you could tell in her episode or how that went, but she has a very loud voice. And when she's on the phone with someone, it gets even louder. And we were, um, this happened like a, a bunch of times. And she's speaking very loudly in Spanish and we're in line to check out at like supermarket and the people in line, you know, are just giving her like the ugliest stares and like looking at her in disgust, honestly. And I'd get like so embarrassed and I'd be like, hang up and try to get her to stop talking to whoever she was talking to. But I know, but it was just, it was almost funny because she would just add another hour to that phone call, you know, Mm -hmm. like she wouldn't, she didn't care, you know. I look back at it and I'm like, thank God she didn't listen to me, like being a stupid little kid. Perceptions of people and language are so important because everything we've talked about or perceptions people have had of us or language that was used led to us like not speaking a language anymore that was like for both of us our first language. I know. Or not being, you know, your most authentic self or being proud of like their culture. And now it's like, wow. I felt like I was always trying to like prove that I was Mexican enough or maybe white enough depending on the situation yeah and I would be in like my Spanish class but I was in AP Spanish and people would be like what are you doing in this class because there was like a lot of Mexican kids in that class and I was I am Mexican and like Spanish was my first language I remember they would look at me like you're so dumb you know like like bullshit you know and I was like that you're right you know like I don't even believe it saying it myself yeah I think that's interesting you bring that point up because it just makes me think of being then with our family 100% and then being being seen as like white or very like American and then then you're around your white friends because you know Mm -hmm. Scottsdale yeah and they see you as Mexican yeah the representative for that culture (laughs) and yeah 
well you're like can you tell them because they aren't seeing what you're seeing anything else you'd like to add i hope that this resonates with others who have gone through similar experiences and thank you for having me you're welcome and then to wrap up i just wanted to point out one fact check on my mom's that she mentioned the ability of realtors to it's called steering so that's when the realtor is purposely no matter of like how much money you do make are gearing you towards a specific community based on your race or ethnicity i just wanted to clear clarify that and then Theo Rahul, who is the first part of the episode, just context is one of my mom's closest friends, who's my sister's godfather, and basically yes. our uncle, and gave me the idea to intern over the summer where I met Sabrina, and we had this amazing podcast now. So thank you to him for that, and I'll see you guys on the next episode. If you loved the stories and conversations on Belong in the USA as much as I did, don't forget to leave a review, subscribe, and share this episode, but also check us out on Instagram at belonginusa. Until next time, this is Sabrina signing off.